What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hola, hola, mi gente. ¿Cómo estamos? It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are listening to Hella Latino, where we talk about all things first gen, where we celebrate Latinidad, and where we highlight community excellence. Today, I'm talking to a husband and wife, beautiful people. I just can't stop smiling after this conversation. Talking to Rosemary, a proud New Yorican, and her husband, Mario, un hermano catracho, proud hondureño. Mario began his artistic career as an illustrator and designer and had a decade-long run with Disney during what is considered its second golden age of animation. His credits include The Lion King, Pocahontas, Atlantis, the Warner Bros. film, Looney Tunes, Back in Action. He was an art director for independent animated features and is now a faculty instructor. Rosemary was born and raised in the South Bronx and started her creative journey as a magazine writer and editor working at Telemundo and NBC, all while creating ideas on the side. This included developing content for animated movies and TV shows with Mario, and together they created this book called Myra and the Drawing Drama, one of their various collaborations, which we'll talk a lot about in this episode today. Enough of me, let's get into it. Let's talk to you both. How do you identify and why? And I personally know, but for the people who are listening, Rosemary, Mario, how do you identify and why? Me? No, you go first. Ladies first. Oh, thanks. I identify as a New Yorican and can't imagine myself identifying any other way. And I feel because I'm going to do it, okay? Like you said, we're going to keep it real. I am very much de los dos. No de uno, no del otro. But like my mind, my language, my rhythms, they all flow from one to the other. And it's very, I can't help it. Right. So, and I grew up Gen X. So they always forced you back then as hablas español or you speak English. I'm like, yo soy dulce de coco y apple pie. So y'all just have to work it out. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's good. Me, um, Hondureño. Um, I'm proud of being Hondureño, and I'm also proud of being a citizen of the United States. I, I have the best of both worlds, and I like to enjoy both cultures. There's something you that I've learned a lot from both cultures, uh, especially coming here to the States and just having opportunities, basically, of, of being an animator and getting into things that you really want to do. I, that was that was really cool. And then my part of Honduras is just something that I'm always going to carry with me. I love it. It's I love the culture, the food, the weather, the beaches, just the people. I just I just love my people, period. I mean, I, it's hard. They're American. I don't know. 
I know. I was going to say, do we have a New York weekend type of word? Uh, yeah, Honduran American. <laughs> Let's make it up. Let's make it up. Yeah. Well, we yeah. did with our kid. Our kid yeah. is Honduran. Honduran, yeah. Honduran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yes, he is. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And what are and what are you, Mario? You're both a baleada, and and what else? Oh, baleada. Oh, but oh. Every time I'm, I'm always looking for ways to do a baleada here at home. I mean, if I any excuse to do one, I'm I'm there all the time. Yeah. So I know but we have to come up with we have to come up with the saying because you said dulce de coco and one for endurance. We're like both baleada and what a hot dog. Like what do what do Americans? But you know, you know, pizza, right? True. Yeah. Here's the thing. I mean, uh, I love. I mean, we. I mean. It's not just America. I mean, I love sushi. I mean, if I can, if if I had, if I was a millionaire, I have a sushi chef every day feeding me sushi. I mean, I just mm-hmm. love every type of food from all over the world. So it's not just like, just specifically Honduran or American. It's just everything worldwide. I just enjoy the just the difference of taste that there is, and it's just unique. Everything is unique. Every every culture is unique, and that's what's 100%. cool about it. A hundred percent. There's one of my favorite standups is Trevor Noah. And he talks about when he moved to America, the first thing that they told him was like, there's nothing more American than a taco. And he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And for him to grasp that, right? But that's really the American experience, at least in my eyes. And it sounds like for you too, is like, you have this melting pot of cultures, especially in New York. I know every time I go, I'm always like, wow, you smell Indian food and then you smell yeah. like Greek food and then you smell like all these different flavors and it's kind of this beautiful mesh. So sometimes, yeah, American is sushi or it's yeah. a, a burrito or it's, it's all these different flavors yeah. coming together. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like the whole planet Earth and one one country, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 100%. So typically, I like starting with what's the immigration story? How did you end up in New York? How, like what happened there? But I kind of want to start backwards. I want to start with how did you two meet? And then we can work backwards a little bit. So tell me the love story because I'm a sucker for love. So <laughs> tell me how you met. You're going to make up your old is what you're doing. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> we go way back to I was a freshman in college determined to focus on my skills, get my degree, be the first one to get a degree in my family. And then on my 19th birthday, I'm going to take a bathroom break from my journalism class. And I bumped smack into this guy. And I thought, happy birthday. And And then she clubbed me like a baby seal. And that was it. Oh my goodness, that is the cutest story. Oh my God. But yeah. So you met met in that moment and then you've been able to do a lot of amazing things together, which we're going to talk about yeah. a little bit. So backtrack, before you got to college, where were you, Maria? Let's start with you. What's the immigration story? If you were a child of an immigrant, like what's that story and how <clears throat> how did you start navigating those first-gen experiences? Well, I was I was born in... Tela, Honduras, and which is right near the beach. I used, I mean, I was able to walk from my house to the beach within a good 10 minutes. I was already there. And, and my father, he was, he was a watchmaker and he, he owned a jewelry store there in, in Tela and he was doing very well for himself, actually. And the reason we came to the States was because my older brother, when he was born, he was born deaf. 
And so my parents were worried about him not getting a proper education in Honduras because there weren't a lot of schools for the for the deaf. So they thought about either going to Spain or going to the United States. And so we wound up coming to the States because we had family here already. So it would have been much easier for us to come in and kind of like get used to the place, someone showing us around. And so we came, we went, we came to the Bronx and grew up here. I saw the Bronx when it was really nice. This was 1972, around 72, 73 when we came. And, and like I used, I would tell her one day I woke up and the Bronx was burned. Basically everything was just burned down. The only thing that stood was my building and just everything, like just everybody just, it, it felt like it was World War II in, in Europe. And, um, we, we got through it. My parents made sure that I stayed in, in the apartment. So they gave me crayons, magic markers. I would watch TV. I would watch cartoons. Uh, yeah, I collected comic books and I would try to draw like the comic artists. And uh, and that got me interested in, in, in the arts, basically. I wanted to, my thing is, I just wanted to learn how to draw the human body. I just I was it was so cool to see the anatomy on the superheroes and all that stuff. And man, that's cool. They got the muscles right. And I just, I just wanted to know how to do that. And that's how I fell into it. And then I went to uh, school of visual arts. I uh, went there for four years. I met my wife there. I met Rosie there. And then after I graduated from SVA, I went to the art students league for two years to just focus on anatomy. And those, those two and a half years I was there actually, helped me get into the Disney studios. And uh, Disney came to recruit one day at, at, at the School of Visual Arts. And I showed my portfolio. I was one of the lucky ones to, to get chosen for the internship and got into the internship. It was like a three-month internship. I was, I was thinking I was going to hang out in the swimming pool and all that stuff when we got there because it was in Florida where, where, where they had the internship. And no, I would be coming out like three o'clock in the morning. The only time I see the swimming pool was like heading towards going to the apartment to go to bed and then coming out in the morning, do it all, all over again. And, and I learned a lot. I mean, I was surrounded by these great artists and uh, Disney animators and, and they really wanted to see you achieve. They wanted to see you. They wanted to see the interns succeed and learn as much as they could so that way they can they can hire us and we can start making films and help them out and that's exactly what happened they hired me and came back there was no work yet so they couldn't give me a job immediately there was there was nothing going on much to hire and then when i came back i waited like almost eight months right eight to nine months i never heard from them so i i told her they're not gonna call me i'm they're never going to do it. So they did they actually called and it was for it was for Aladdin. They needed people to help them finish the 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 like the last month of Aladdin because it wasn't they were on crunch time. So they needed more hands on board. And so they flew me to Florida and and I worked on, on Aladdin. I, I I did clean up on the tassels on the flying carpet. That was like my first thing ever professional yeah i know and i called my mom and i and i called rose and i told when you see the movie look at the tassels that was me i cleaned that up that's <laughs> and to me it was a big deal I, did that. <laughs> I was like i did the tassels you saw that so and then i we were then we were there for four years in florida and i i tried to become an animator i went into the i would do tests to try to get into the animation program um 
and I would, they, they said no to me like three times. <laughs> you're not ready. You're not ready. And but it's okay. It's but they'll tell you why you're not ready. And and until finally I, I I finally made it and we moved to Los Angeles where my first film as an actual animator was Tarzan and I worked on on Kala Tarzan's mom. And so yeah, and then I just started animating. It was like a dream come true because when I was a kid. I fell in love with animation because of Pinocchio. I, I saw Pinocchio for the first time, and and I couldn't believe how beautiful the animation was, the movement, the acting, and the backgrounds, how detailed they were. Like, just the f- focus on the littlest thing. That was just amazing to me. And as an illustrator, I was kind of like, that's pretty cool. I don't mind doing that one day. And I uh, kind of wound up doing that, basically, in the end. And so then went on to Art Direct and do storyboards. I went to Warner Brothers and and I just gained a lot of knowledge from all these great artists that I had the pleasure and the luck to work with. Mm-hmm. I it, to tell you the truth, I what I told one of the things I do miss about animation is 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 working with the other other animators, the other artists and learning more. Just keep because it felt like you were going to school every day and getting paid for it which is the cool thing. And wow. and then we decided to come back once we had our, our little one so he can grow up with the family. And, That's and beautiful. That's beautiful. Before I ask you a million questions and go to Rosemary, I have one question first. How does the animation work? This is just out of my pure curiosity. Is there like mm-hmm. somebody working on the tassel versus someone working on this character? Is Is there a room of animators... This is how I picture it. a room of animators and everyone has like a section of the scene and everyone's just kind of putting the pieces together. Is that how it works? Or what's give us a visual of what it looks like? Well, let's say you have what they do first is they do the storyboards. They have to do the storyboards first. Mm-hmm. So the storyboards is a bunch of like little comic books. Think of the comics, but with more, more frames, more details. That gets approved. Mm-hmm. Once it's approved... They'll go into basically where they, they'll do the layouts out of that. They'll, 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 they'll start basically doing the, the voices. They'll get the actors to do the voice first. And then they'll give it to the animator. And the animator, using the voice, they'll act it out themselves. So once they act it out and they're ready to, to work on that scene, they're actors. Animators were, were actors, but with a pencil or with a pen. We really are. We're just, we're hams. We really love to show off our acting. We're just too shy to get in front of a camera. That's our problem. So we decided, well, let's become animators and let the characters do the, do the work for us. And so we'll act it out. And uh, so we have a week or two, depending on the on how long the scene is. And then we'll give it to the cleanup department. They'll clean up those rough drawings that, that the animator would do. Then we'll go into color and then to the background, and then they'll put sound and everything and special effects, and boom, and you have your final product after that. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. I want to go to you, Rosemary. You said you're New Yorkian, proud, raised in South Bronx. Tell me about your identity and tell me about navigating those first-generation moments. Yeah, I, I feel like... I'm fascinated like you with all things Latino. I I feel like having been exposed to to in, in my career trajectory to to variety of our brethren, I feel there's these fascinating dynamics, but I feel that with the New Yorican experience, it's a lot 
different. I feel like it's not like any other Latino or Latinx experience in the States. And the sense that I, I don't want to get heavy here, but it feels sometimes like you're Harry Potter and you're living under the staircase, so to speak. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. We're, we're mm-hmm. citizens on paper, but we're second class citizens. And so the dream of the American dream is like we're Americans, but not quite. There's this otherness that's attached to being Puerto Rican, period. New Yorican, it's a whole other subcategory, if you will. So to navigate, it's like you're you're going through the Latinx experience, but technically it's confusing because you're supposed to be a citizen. But so we're not like it's a very, very I'm very fascinated because I feel like with with, with the Latino community, I I bond with them on many levels. And yet I feel kind of like it's a different, like I'm, I'm witnessing, I'm not experiencing it the same way. And then when I'm in what we would call mainstream culture, I'm like American, but not really. We, I, Puerto Ricans get the same treatment as first gen people. And in the sense that if I walk in and go, yo soy Americana, which is how I was raised, and I walk into the room feeling like Americana and they go, no, who, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from New York. No, no, where are you from? No, no, no I'm from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And, no, but really, where are you from? I'm like, no, no, I was born in a hospital in the Bronx. And they're like, no, no, where are your parents from? I go, oh, they're from Puerto Rico. Oh, you're Puerto Rican. I'm like, don't tell a Puerto Rican that. <laughs> it's like, they don't see me as a Puerto Rican. So there's this otherness always, yeah. like you can't possibly just be from New York with a white person. If they tell you they're from Boston, it ends there. When you're Latino and you're in your Puerto Rican, I mean, you see it in the news, right? You get, you, people now have to get IDs that's, that reminds the Puerto Rican ID now the government is going to issue um, an ID that says Puerto Rico, comma, United States, because people are being sent, have ICE being called on them even when they produce their Puerto Rican ID because they they can't possibly be American. And we're talking about 2023. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very different experience for me. Yeah. If you could say more about like that experience of you're seeing the Latino experience happen, but you don't quite feel like it's happening to you. Say more about what that disconnection feels like or what it is. It's like you're water skiing, with your foot on two different skis, right? And you're kind of having to do it almost in a split. You're not quite in either standing in either, which I feel is unique to the um, Puerto Rican experience because I feel like even with like fellow Caribbeans, like Dominicanos or Cubanos, there's this like La Patria, La Isla, there's this, this very definitive identity and yet ours as a colony is very different because you're American when you have to go to war. You're American when you have to pay taxes. Mm. And they do pay taxes if you look up the Jones Act. But then when but then when you have to vote for the person that will send you to war or raise your taxes, you don't have a say so. And so there's that really strange dynamic, whereas with Latinos who are coming from their respective motherland, so to speak, they're coming in for the most part with ambitions to kind of 
come in and grow from that. And we're coming in and we're like, we'd like a seat at the table, but they're like, no, you wait over there on that table. And so mm-hmm. I always feel like with like with other Latinos, when they speak to us with as Puerto Ricans, we are an anomaly and you feel like an anomaly. Not in a bad way necessarily. It's just a weird thing. And it's nobody's fault other than our situation. But it's a very strange place to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like exactly what you said about Harry Potter. Like you're living under the staircase, right? And you're just like... I'm here. Like, I'm right here. I'm still in the same household as you. We're in the same. I'm American. Pero you're American cuando les conviene, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, like, what it is. Yeah. I can see why you connect so much with New Yorkan and that experience of being from the Bronx. And were you around a lot of Puerto Ricans? Did you feel like, I'm New Yorkan through and through? Did that feel more like your identity than American or Puerto Rican? Yeah, it did. When I was growing up, it was we were the predominant Latino group in the United States for a very long time. And and then the in the early 70s and 80s, Central Americans started coming in. And, and then after that, it was Dominicans who are now the most dominant Latino group in New York. So for a good while, it felt like we were like living in, let's say, Little Havana or Little Puerto Rico. We lived in El Barrio. My mom came from El Barrio and then before moving to the Bronx. So we had a lot of enclaves that had todo el sabor puertorriqueño and everything. And so it was, that's why I feel New Yorican is, is the right term because I could, I couldn't get down with all the food, the culture, everything through that bubble, through that lens. But I honestly never been to the island. So <laughs> I can't really claim to be Puerto Rican in that sense, because if I walk in there, they'll be like, oye, tu eres gringa. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, real. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was very much a dominant a Puerto Rican vibe. And so I felt that connection through all the communities, through the communities and the neighborhoods. And it was very dominant because even. Mario would tell me like when he was growing up that it's like, oh, how we got around and how we learned our language, how we were comfortable in our language and in our space was because they were living in neighborhoods where we were at already. And so there was that sense of camaraderie and and connection through language and, and similar culture. I love, that's the one thing I love about Latinos is that we show up for each other in community, right? Sometimes, sometimes we don't, but like oftentimes we come together and we're able to create community, which I think is so beautiful. But Rosemary, walk me through, I love your bio because it said you had many creative lives. Walk me through all the creative lives you had and how did you start, like how did you navigate those spaces and what was your mission with all the big companies that you worked for and all the big things that you've done in your career? I just liked to write. And I liked stories and I like human stories. And by that, I mean, it's like I'm fascinated by stories that are not necessarily mine, but allow me to kind of experience somebody else's point of view for just a moment. And I think that there's something magical about that. And so like Mario, we were growing up in a, a New York or in a Bronx in particular that was burnt down and not for us to do outside. So for my my world was surrounded by books. And so I read and I read anything and everything. My mom would say I'd read a salt packet if it had words on it. And it's true. <laughs> she does. Actually. She does. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, 
Yeah. And so from there, it's, I thought I'd want to be a teacher because that's what your Latina mom will tell you. I get bueno, vete a ser una enfermera o una maestra. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I guess I could do that if there's words involved. So I was cool with that. And then my mom, I was with, a, my mom was a single mom up until I was 11. And then she married a Honduran. <laughs> Ahí estamos. So I told Catrachos. you. It's like, <laughs> I can't get away from it. It's, I just had to own it. So there, my, my kid sister is on the OG Honduran in our family. And when she came along, I loved her. She was all kind of spice in two directions. And I realized I couldn't imagine me in a room of 12 of those. And I was like, I don't think I want to mm -hmm. teach. I think I want to do something else with words. <laughs> <laughs> like no way no you way know, i love her but i can't do 12 of those no i can't sit in a room with 12 of these these little creatures <laughs> so so then i thought about it and i was like i was always writing poetry i was always like doing what you do when you admire stuff right you start to go off to the side and try your own hand at it so for a long time i sounded like a victorian white guy in when i wrote It was like the sonnets and uh, <laughs> stuff, very flowery stuff. <laughs> and then when I got my hands on more diversified literature, I was like, whoa, you mean we could tell our stories? You mean we can do stuff? And then I, I became absorbed with trying to do the same thing with our stories, but in a way that was still universal. And from there, I, yeah, and... I went to, I went, when I went to college, I wanted to do the practical thing. I did journalism. I wanted to tell stories about our community and stuff like that. By the time I found myself when I was writing nonfiction that I would always stray back to either poetry or fiction. And then I'm, when I met him, I would hang out with all the artists at SVA. And then I'd be like, what are you guys doing? Ooh, let me write a story about this. And I'd be doing these side projects all the time. And so I got this degree, but then I was really like always gravitating towards. So I was always, I'm forever jet skiing is all I can say. It's like I went from nonfiction to fiction back and forth. And that's how I wound up doing magazine editing for Latino publication. I did a lot of interviews about our Latino entertainers and up and coming because that scene was growing in the 1990s and it was a really exciting time. And for those who might remember back then, that's around the time Christina Aguilera comes out and Ricky Martin and Mark Anthony and all these peeps are coming out and they're getting these crossover albums and they're blowing up. And I was covering all that wonderful stuff. And then the magazine world changed once we got the internet. So I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do next? And then I segued into working for a media company. So I wound up at Telemundo and uh, they got bought up by NBC. So then I'm jet skiing again. So I'm working with Telemundo and NBC at the same time. <laughs> so always forever a jet skier is what I'm hearing. In real life, <laughs> never. But yeah, yeah. Hypothetically, I mean, no, uh, I yeah. I want to ask you because I think it's the jet ski is I can't get that image out of my head now because <laughs> I think it's very I think it's very similar to the first gen experience right like you're really navigating life and these your feet are in two different places like it feels like all the time mm -hmm. and I'm listening to your story and you're saying like you loved words and you loved to write and you loved poetry but then you did the practical thing and you went to school 
and you were always kind of doing things on the side, even if you had your career. Was there a moment for you where you were like, I want to go all in and just risk this practical career? Or was there kind of a balance that you found of doing both at the same time? For a while, we were doing both at the same time because you can't live with an artist and not as an, uh, another creative and not end up kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. So when one of the things that when I met Mario, I was like, aside from being cute, it's like he's got skills and I kind of would love to work with him. So it's, I kind of knew we would work well together. Enamoro. <laughs> so I was like, but you know what? It's, it's, it's terrible because I'm like, all right, he's cute, but I, I really want to work with him. So it was like business. Yeah. I was trying to mix it all up. So, yeah. And <laughs> I actually saw his work and sometimes we'd bounce off of each other. Like I'd write something and then he'd doodle something on the side from something, some smart alecky thing I said, and he'd just sketch it on the side or he'd do something and I'd be like, that'd be a cool story. And then that's a cool character. And there hit a point where as the entertainment world changed, everything has changed. And we started to feel like the worlds that we were working on were starting to crumble and morph into something else. And so on the side, we started to do ideas. And when right around the time when animation went away from hand-drawn to computerized, that's when we were like, you know what, let's start putting our stuff out there. Let's see. And we pitched around some, we had a, an idea and it landed. And and as if you know anything about like the entertainment world and Hollywood and creating content, you almost always get there and then something random will happen and it all kind of collapse. Either the executive leaves or they break off or they have a new CEO and then they tear down everything. And so there's a lot of that. If you're an actor, if you're creating movies or TV ideas or whatever, that's par for the course. It's like it comes with the turf. And so we were in the almost category for quite a while, but we kept creating. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, that kind of brings me to this Myra and the drawing drama and the book that you have out. I, I was reading it and I'm like, it kind of reminds me of the skis again. It reminds me of that first gen experience, right? Of like, just trying to do something that your inner child likes. And it sounds like both of you have really done that for yourselves, What's tell me about the book for those who haven't read it or haven't heard of it. Tell me about what the book is and the catalyst behind creating it. Like I said, we used to come up with a lot of ideas. And so we had a little pile sitting around. And when we moved to New York, it was already the Great Recession. And so there were layoffs at the networks. Things were getting skeleton crude in the studios. And we were like, okay, you hit that point where you feel like, you're either going to get pushed off the plank or you jump on your own terms. Mm -hmm. And for me, at that time, we had just had our son. I came back from maternity leave. I go back to the network and all the coordinators that were working there were let go except me and someone else that was also on maternity leave. And we were told, okay, you need to absorb everyone else's stuff. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I can't do that with a new baby. So it was kind of already written. And I was like, let's, this is our segue, if you will. And we were all the way in Cali, all our families here in New York. And then Mario and I were like, well, if we're going to do the change and have them be near family, let's do it now. And we did. Once we did that, we had to start all over from ground zero. And we were 
all kinds of frazzled. It was a recession. There was not a lot going on in our fields. And we thought, what do we do now? So we still missed working together. And we did this project, which was based on some silly accident, a si- incident that happened to me when I was seven years old. And he's, I said, let's do it then. He said, we can turn this, which was going to be an animated short, and we're going to turn it into a children's book and make it kind of like a calling card to show what we can do. I mean, you you told me the story, what happened to you, and I just felt that that, that, that would make a great story. And I think one of the, the first ideas was to make it into a short film. And, and I storyboarded that in, in Cali. I remember I was just doing thumbnails for it. But then once once our son was born, I had to put that to the side and focus on our mm-hmm. son. And, and within a few months, we were already packing to go back to New York. And so... And once we got to New York, we, we started talking about the project again, and, and we just decided to make it into a children's book. I wasn't ready to illustrate this book I, or to even, I know you wanted, it to be an, you wanted it to be an illustration in the beginning, right? like, in the, like a, a, a picture book. And this yeah. was in LA, <clears throat> but I wasn't ready to do that. I just, I was not ready at all whatsoever because. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Um... I was being in LA and still being around the industry, my work looked too much like what the industry looks like. So it had a voice, but it was the voice of the industry. It wasn't my voice. It wasn't Mario. Like what, who am I? And, and I didn't know who I was. So I think moving back to New York and just getting away from the industry and then just focusing on myself as an artist, I, I found, I kind of found my voice. It was a combination of me as an illustrator, which is what I always wanted to do, and a little bit of what I learned in, in, in the animation field. And it was kind of like, it's something that just merged, but it, had, it kind of merged naturally. And, and, it, and it just, the art just kind of led me into where I was supposed to go. It wasn't me trying to force it or, or thinking what, how it should look like. And I was, and I was really, I was very satisfied with the, with the things I was seeing that I was putting down on paper because I felt that it was, it was a combination of things that I love and a little bit of me in there. And just breaking away from the animation was very important for me, I think, to, to, to gain my confidence as an illustrator. Because when you're in the industry for a long time, you do fall into kind of like drawing a certain way and, and to the point that, that's all that's 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 the way your drawings are going to look for example i had a friend who came to la i was still in the uh, the disney studios and he came to to visit us and and then he wanted to see my sketchbook and i showed it to him and he basically he was just flipping through it and he was unimpressed with it because at that time i was at the disney studio everything looked kind of disney-ish every drawing was very disney-ish even my my rough drawings or even drawings that i should that I'm drawing about looking at people and sketching in the street had that Disney-ish thing about it. And he told me, this is not you. I said, who are you? Where are you? 
I remember when you when before you went to Disney, I, I loved your stuff, but now it's 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 I see Disney, I don't see you. And that stuck with me all that time for all those years it stuck with me. And he and I knew he would he pissed me off for saying that, but I knew he was right. He was right. He was yeah, he was right. And and it's, there's nothing wrong with there's artists who draw the Disney's and they love that. That's their passion. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because they know what to do with it. Right. They know exactly what to do with it. And it's something they always wanted to do. But with me, I just I knew that I wanted to do. I was glad I did it. I worked for the Disney Studios. I worked for Warner Brothers. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what of the work that I left back there. And it's going to be seen for many generations. And that I'm very proud of. But that was a job. I got paid for it. I did it. And and it took me a while to to understand that. And 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 when I understood that is when it was that's when I started to change. That's when I started to find myself. And I'm still finding myself. I haven't I, I that book is just the beginning of I guess what what's to come. And I don't know what that is. I just have to go story by story and just let it let the story talk to me and then allow it to come out and see what happens in the end. Well, there's that. But then there's also the we I don't know if you've seen the online comic strip that we created, yeah. too. And so there's there's all these these projects that we're doing now are more of a manifestation of the all the experiences. Right. But this book was actually um, based on what happened to me as a seven-year-old when, I don't know if you've seen a meme um, that they show um, where there's this little girl that she did a drawing of her mom at work and it looked like a completely different scenario than what she really was drawing <laughs> yeah. and everybody's, oh Lord. And it's <laughs> right, and, it, it, and that actually happened to me. And I did a drawing and this is why he does the drawings and I don't. <laughs> and I was really proud of that drawing. That sun looked beautiful. My tree looked beautiful. And then I got the brilliant idea of putting myself on a tire swing. Now, I don't know. I don't care what kind of artist you are. If you try to draw yourself on a tire swing, it's just not going to come out right. Okay. <laughs> I did not have those skills. So when my sweet teacher looked at that drawing, she was like, she was petrified and she was talking slowly and walking backwards. And next thing I'm going from one office to the next office. And we're all having these deep discussions about my mindset and how I'm feeling. And I'm thinking, wow, they must have really loved this drawing. And then they called my mom. And then I realized that wasn't the conversation that I thought they were having. <laughs> and I was like, you can't make this up. We got to make something. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's something. Rosemary, I could just imagine you like, I did that. I did that drawing. Like, I'm so good. proud. And everyone's like worried. <laughs> oh, no. I was so proud until until my mom came in the office. And I was like, oh, God, what is going on? She was like, <laughs> she was clutching pearls. She didn't own. It was just, I, I don't know. I was like, what is going on? So, yes, I thought about how is it that adults forget sometimes how to think like a kid. And I know adults' first job is to be protective of children. And so I appreciate that in hindsight. And, but I do also realize that it's like, maybe that always stuck with me. And I thought that was so funny if I didn't live through it, but it's still funny. So I thought it would make a funny story, but at the same time, the kind of story that a kid could show their parents or show a grown up and go, see, this is what I'm talking about. Y'all just come up 
with these weird ideas. <laughs> and I was just doing the drawing. That's what I'm doing. But the book is really for the adults. We just hit it as a children's book, but it's really for the adults. It's for them so they can see themselves in the mirror and how they screw things up for the kids once in a while when they see their drawings. <laughs> so it's really for them. Just just think twice before you go crazy. Just talk to the kid first. Just do something common sense. Ask yeah. a couple of questions. Yeah. Yeah. I might save you a heart question. attack. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I want to do a quick backtrack because you both mentioned Bronx being burned down. For those that don't know that history or that story, can you give me a little bit of a of a history lesson on this Bronx before and after? Yeah, um, there's a wonderful documentary out. It was on yeah. PBS. It's called The Decade of Fire. And I highly recommend anyone who's ever curious about that era to check it out. It's free watch it anywhere you might even be able to catch it on youtube for free and it pretty much details there was this planning city planning that was being done and there was a gentleman by the name of robert moses who had the idea to create something called the cross bronx expressway which kind of cut right through into the bronx and what it did is it created a way for people to go from the city into the suburbs and back without necessarily having to deal with the Bronx. When that happened, everyone started to move either to the suburbs, especially once the city got expensive, and then they could commute into the city without. But what it did is it created this, this void. And then a lot of landlords, what they did was they tried to get out of owning these buildings, these tenement buildings, and try to make more money elsewhere and follow the where the money was. And when they couldn't get out of it, what they did is they would they would pay arsonists. They would even pay teenagers mm-hmm. and to burn the buildings. And then once they got the insurance money, they would not rebuild the building. They would take off. Now they didn't have to deal with the building. They also what they did was decimate the community. And they headed off to the suburbs with the money and left us in rubble, basically. Whoever couldn't afford to leave had to grow up there. Mm -hmm. Wow. And both of you coming from the Bronx and seeing where your life is now, and you've been able to do amazing things like, Mario, you're doing... I think both of you are being kind of like modest. You've been able to do a lot of things, work for really big companies, work for really big movies, Seeing that that's your history and like your roots, besides being from Honduras and and being New Yorkian, when you reflect back now, how has your experience being from those areas, Honduras, Bronx, New Yorkian, how has that impacted the way you show up in your work now or just how you navigate life now? Uh, as, a prof- as a professor now at the school where I, where I met, Rosie, at the School of Visual Arts, one of the things I tell my students is that nothing is impossible. Nothing's impossible. And that's for anybody that's, that's hearing us right now. Nothing is impossible. Whatever you put your mind into, and if you believe in what you do, it'll, you'll be able to, to achieve that. And I, and, I, and, I, and I tell my students, look at me. I came from Honduras, very young, third world country, then came to New York and somehow survived the Bronx that was burning and made it to one of the biggest studios in the planet at that time in the 90s, which was the Walt Disney Studios. So if I can do this, why can't you do it? You just have to 
believe in yourself. You have to not let anybody tell you you cannot do it because no one's going to control your your future. No one's going to tell you you can't do this and can't do that. One of the things I remember when I was younger and and I would tell my dad, I, I, I can't I can't do this. There's, there's no way I can do it. My father will get upset at me and he'll tell me he'll 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 ask me, OK, sit down and he'll ask me, do you have two eyeballs? I go, yep. You have two hands? I go, yeah. You have 10 fingers? I go, yeah. You have a brain? I go, yeah. So what's your problem? Go do it. If that person can do it, you can do it too, because you have the same tools they have. Just go do it, focus, and get it done. And that always stuck with me. Always, always stuck with me to just... You know, another thing is that you have to love what you're doing, too. You got to find that thing that you love. So because if you find what you love, you're never going to work a day in your life. I mean, I don't feel like I'm working even to this day. And I never saw myself teaching ever teaching. I mean, that was like the last thing. I mean, I hated school. So but here I am. I'm teaching now. And I love it. I love it. I get up in the morning. I love going to teach my students. I love being part of their journey into what they want to achieve in the future. And and when it's fun and I tell everyone, just find what you love, find what that is that you love and do it. And don't worry, the money will come. If you love it, you're going to become one of the best at it. It's simple as that. Because it's going to happen. Once you love whatever you do, you're going to do it because you're passionate, because no one needs to tell you that you should do it. You're just going to do it because you want to do it from your heart and you can't wait to get it done and get it done beautifully. Then the money will come after that because people are going to see the excellence of your work and how well you do it. So nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. Just be ready for it. My wife always tells me, just be ready for it when they tap you on the shoulder. As simple as that, mm. you know. And the way I got into Disney is once I graduated from SVA, I felt that I, w- I still was not strong enough in drawing. And so that's why I went to the Art Students League. And I just did it just to improve. And one day I just wanted to be an illustrator, move upstate New York with her, buy a nice little house and just paint. And because of those two and a half years training at the Art Students League, this that's that's how I got into Disney. And just because I just kept, you know, if you just keep doing what you love and, and look for ways to improve it, one day someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and they're like, hey, you're ready. You want there's an opportunity here. Go check it out. And you, you go. And before you, you realize all the doors are opening, just walk right through it after mm-hmm. that and see what happens. That's like a, that's the quote, right? Like success is when opportunity meets preparation. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Love that. Rosemary, what about you? How has your identity really shaped the way that you write maybe, or the way that you create or the way that you just navigate the world now? I feel like I always felt kind of like an outsider. And so I have this affinity for the other no matter what kind of other it is. And so when I tell stories, I always think about the kid that is awkward or the kid that is unsure or the kid that is a little bit sad and melancholy. I always try to think about 
that kid that doesn't fit into any particular mold and try to create a story that either honors their energy or invites them and lets them know that you're perfectly fine. And not only are you fine, you're entertaining and you can have adventures in your own way. And we're going to celebrate that. And I try to make that like my North Star because the otherness can be whether it's your ethnicity or your race or your orientation or your, you know, uh, uh, capabilities if you're um, disabled. And so I, I like to do things for people who march to the beat of their own drum. Mm. Oh, and that's a powerful story to tell too, when it's someone that is unique. Because I feel like we don't often hear enough that our uniqueness is what makes us different and it's what makes us dope mm -hmm. in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's why, Maria, at one point your friend was like, where's your old drawings at? Where, where are you in all of this, in all of this art? And to that question, how did you start to find your voice again? Because I think you can get lost, right? And mm -hmm. whether it's your career or whatever you choose to do and being practical and choosing both safety and creativity, which I think sometimes is a first-gen experience, right? We don't come from money oftentimes. And so you have to choose something that is filling your pockets and your passion. And sometimes it's not always the same thing. And so Mario, how did you find like your, your voice again? What were the steps that you took? And for those who are listening, who are looking for their voice again in poetry, creativity, how did you do it? How I found my voice, I just had to shed just everything that I had to do with just the way you do things in animation. I don't know how that happened. I think it was just looking at different types of arts and seeing how they express them, themselves. Getting back into that mentality of looking at even directors, film directors who are not afraid of doing their own thing, having their own voice. And being in New York, just seeing the way people are, how they're, they... When you meet them, the first time you meet them, you know exactly who you're meeting. They're like, it just comes out. And and then being surrounded by that, being surrounded by people honking the horn and telling you to move, hurry up. Just, just a lot of that. Yeah, we don't want to be polite. We just got to get going. Now move, Mario. Cross the street. Hurry up. Just do it. You know, it, I, I think it just the adrenaline goes up, the energy, all that yeah. stuff. And then before you know it, I'll come home. And because of all that adrenaline, I start drawing what I feel of, of everything that I've seen and that I've taken in in the city. And, and, and then it starts to look different. It starts to, it feels like it's another, like I just learned a new language and it's just, it is just pouring out. It's just coming out. It, and I'm not caring anymore about, these rules and that rule. And I think that's one of the things, animation rules, this and that. And then as I'm drawing, I've got to keep in mind these rules. And I just threw that away. I just threw that out. And I just allowed myself to let my hand just move and flow and see what came out. And I liked what was coming out. And it didn't matter what it was. I didn't care if the drawing was ugly or it. But the thing, one thing I know for sure is that there was a period where it was when I came from LA that it, my drawings looked a certain way and then i saw in the middle of that change it was awkward my drawings were awkward they were weird and 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 i felt like i was trying to learn how to draw all over again 
then I didn't know what it was, but it was interesting. And I just kept going and see where it took me. And then before I, I knew it, I kind of knew what I was doing. After It kind of like I was controlling it now. And I think it was that awkwardness of leaving behind all that stuff, a lot of the, the animation thing. And then it was the morphing that I was seeing and into what basically I'm doing right now. And I'm still changing. I'm not done yet. I, I think I'm right now I'm at the I'm crawling right now. I'm like a baby is learning how to right now. I'm still crawling and I haven't stood up yet, <laughs> you know. I think, well, well, one, it's beautiful that you have someone like Rosemary in your life because someone that celebrates individuality and otherness. And as you're crawling and trying to find what makes you unique, I think it's such a, I'm just a sucker for love, but I think it's the perfect <laughs> union of complementing each other, right? In that respect. But I recently had an event and someone asked me like, what's our first gen superpower and what's our, our biggest opportunity? And it's an interesting question because I could say a million things, but our superpower is similar to what you laid out for the book. And it was like, it's our resourcefulness. It's our creativity. It's our confidence. It's our community oriented, like way of doing things and so much, right? There's so much superpowers that we have, but one opportunity that I see often is that at least for me, like our families, the immigrants that come here, they're from Honduras, La Isla, they say, get your head down, keep working, keep moving, and that's how you get ahead, right? We we sometimes have all this power, but we try to contain it and we try to fit in because that's how you get ahead. That's how you succeed. And it works all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think the opportunity is for us to learn how to play the game, learn how to play the animation game, learn how to yeah. play the writing game, learn how to do all these things, and then start to change the rules so that it includes more of the individuality. It includes more of us. And all of our sazón, all of our power, all mm-hmm. of our baleadas and meche de coco. So it can include all the different beauty that we have and the richness that we have and the creativity we have. But I think like you, it was a perfect story, Mario, of someone who learned the craft and mastered the craft and now is changing it to fit more of your voice. And I think it's going to give a lot of Latinos opportunities to do the same or people in general to do the same. So just to give yeah. you your flowers, both of oh, you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It, it It's just something where it's just taking the opportunity of just making sure that you do what you want to do just and just go for it. You have nothing to lose and, and you'd be surprised. I mean, this book, we we went for it. It was first self-published. Yeah, we yeah. self-published it first and we put it to the side. We were working on other stuff at mm-hmm. that point. We were working on our online comic strip, which we co-created with our son, who is on the autism spectrum. And whoever tells you that autistic people are not funny, they don't know nothing. Because <laughs> this kid is like naturally born, just like he co- he's funny AF. That's all I can say. And I just started <laughs> to collect his stuff. And I was like, it was, we were, our mind was on this now. And then suddenly somebody came up to us and said, somebody's interested in republishing this book now. And then we were like, seriously, it's nine years or seven years, something like that. No, nine years. And just when it made its 10th year of creation, it comes out in this new form. A new pub, independent publisher gave us a contract, re-released it. And then while in the middle of that, the editor liked the idea so much that he shared it with one of his friends who's a theater director for children's musicals. And he's adapting it into a musical as we speak. 
So now the book is going to become a musical and hopefully be touring the country. Wow. Well, congratulations. How do you both feel? How do you both feel about that? I think it really tickled me. I think out of anything, I was like, this. none of this was in my bingo card. This was a little calling card project that we made. We did it just to show off that we can write and do children's stories and he can illustrate. And then we put it off to the wayside and went off to do other things. And it just came back like a boomerang, but like full throttle. And we were like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And so it's the thing, it almost feels like life imitating art. If you see the book and you see the character, she's larger than life. Now she gets to sing and dance and show off up on a stage. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't even know how, how, how was, yeah. I remember when, when we got the news and how's that going to work? Yeah. Like how are they going to do that? But then, <laughs> then we were talking at dinner and, and I, and I think I told you, well, you know what? They're professionals at this stuff. They know what they're doing. They, 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 they see something. You have to trust them, and let's see what they come up with. All you can do is just wait and see what they can, what they're going to come up with. They picked it for a reason, so they feel they can do something with it, and then they they send us rough music. Yeah, they they yeah. came out with sixteen songs, seventeen yeah. songs from that little book. Yeah, yeah. So oh I'm God. really excited. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen when they narrow it all down, but it's just been really a fun, amazing journey with this character and having to see her. She was the alter ego of who I never was because I was very shy back then. And so she was I was like, if she was, you know, the opposite of me, how would she have handled this situation that happened to me? And I made her big and I made her loud. And and I guess they loved her enough to give her a musical and so it's it's yeah i'm still tripping over that <laughs> so so we write That's, and we draw the things we really want to do yeah in life yeah that's amazing i mean two questions for you and kind of a two-prong one what is something that you want everyone to walk away with whether they're looking at the musical reading the book or like reading whatever work that you're producing, what do you want people to walk away with from the story? And I feel like I can kind of pick up on some things, but what's the general message you want everyone to learn? I would say that um, everyone has an epic inside of them and the people who are usually the quietest can take you on one heck of a journey if you give them a chance. And so at least when I create a character, I want you to follow them. And as Latinos who grew up in the States, we, we're used to consuming popular culture, popular American culture. And so we're well-versed in taking journeys from other people that are not like us. And we assimilate them very well. We connect on a human level. I think that's the gift of all immigrants, regardless of where they come from. When you come here to the States, yeah. we can consume your culture and we'll take it in and it doesn't necessarily tarnish or dilute our our being. And if anything, it strengthens us, right? So when I create, I want to invite anybody to go look at it. And I'm kind of daring you to not like this person or feel like you can't connect. It's mm. like as a as a Latina, when I've created through the years, they've told me, your stuff is good, but we can't relate to it or there's no market for it. 
So I'm very happy to be alive at a time now to have made it this far that we can create stuff and I want to have fun with it. I want to tell you, I dare you to not like this person and not want to be at least a little bit curious to walk in their shoes because we do it all the time. Come on, you join us now. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we, we all have a voice. I mean, this book, everyone has a voice where just because it's not a, 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 a voice that we're used to hearing doesn't mean that they have nothing to say. So in this case, Myra is trying to say something. And just because you don't understand it yet, what it is, doesn't mean that she has nothing to say or she's trying to say something totally different. And you have to give that chance. You got to give a chance of people that every every person has potential for something like it's something great. And uh, you just have to just have to look twice and be patient and let that grow. That's all it really is. Yeah. In the end. Mm. Second question is in the same vein of Myra, what is the, how can we all tap into that child? So the one that's creative, that's thinking outside the box, like how do we all tap into that? And why is it important for us to tap in and think like a child? I would say that for me, I think that's been my saving grace. I feel like Growing up the way I did, growing up around a lot of social dysfunction, and then I felt like I could always retreat, not just social, but even at home. Like I was, I grew up in a single parent home for a while, and so you become a grown up very quickly. You have to be an assistant mm -hmm. to your parents. And I felt like there was a big part of me that never got a chance to kind of go out and play in the because there was rubble and I couldn't really go out and play that much because there was too much going on and I had to be a helper, especially being a firstborn. So that part of me has always kind of been there, kind of, kind of wanting to come out and play. And so I always tried, to, as I grew up and got empowered, wanted to honor that child and to give people permission to always be in touch with that child, because I feel like the inner child is what ultimately guides you through life's pressure, pleasures, while you're in the pressures. And that's the thing that I feel kind of is the guide to how I create these characters. For me, it would be basically draw like a child. Go back to being that child again, that kid that loved to draw when they were five or six years old. And, and just draw that way because that's when you're free and you're able to express yourself better. And I... And I and Picasso was the one, right, that said it best. He just draw and paint like a like, like a child all over again. That he 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 drew, he painted and illustrated beautifully, very realistically. And then one day he decided to draw like a kid, like a child, and literally he did. And but he was expressing himself more because now he was able to be himself. That's when he became Picasso for real. And so when when an artist learns all these rules of art and but you need to learn these foundations and this is what I tell my students once you learn those foundations throw it away and then start <laughs> drawing like a little kid again and you bring that child that that loved drawing that didn't that that just did it because they love it Bring that child back again and do your work that way. And if you get stuck, if you get stuck, that's when you go to your foundation and then just take out, let's say, oh, I don't know. I'm having problems drawing this arm. Go back to your anatomy on the arm and then just take the, the arm and put it in there and keep drawing like a child. 
<laughs> and that's it. That's the key, basically. Integrating yeah, it. Integrating it. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And I think that's almost for everything. Beautiful answers. I just want like a mic to drop for obviously both of you, but I can't drop this mic. <laughs> no, 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 don't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> don't do it. That's beautiful answers. And I wish I could just keep talking to you all forever because I'm I'm learning so much and I'm also just being inspired by both of you. And just Thank you. your child, this is not to be offensive, but I don't know how to say it in a, a non-offensive way, but your childlike spirit, like you both have this like energy that's so creative and, and it's just, it makes me feel like it's that childlike spirit. And I want to tell you this quick story because I think you'll both appreciate it. But there was a time where my family, my my family was going through rough times. And I had my nephew who was seven, seven years old at the time. I was babysitting him and he starts collecting these like cardboard boxes that we had just laying around. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's, oh, I just want some cardboard boxes. And then he starts getting the tape. And then he starts asking me for scissors. And then he starts asking me for all these like items. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to give it to him because he's entertained. So then he has glue, scissors, tape, cardboard boxes. And he starts putting this like thing together, contraption. I don't know what it was at the time. And I'm just, you know, glancing, peeking glances every now and then. And then he creates this like little makeshift lemonade stand. And I'm like, that's impressive. And he's, yeah, I'm going to go sell my drawings outside so that I can help you guys pay for food. And I just thought it was the sweetest and it's my favorite memory of him. Like it is the sweetest, most innocent, creative thing I've ever seen, like play in real time. And like, it gets me emotional thinking about it because it came from such a beautiful place. And it was like, yeah, I want to help you guys pay for food. And it was like my heart. (laughs) And he did stand out there. He did stand out there and he did sell his drawings. I think he got probably one person that paid, I think, a dollar or two for his like little, it wasn't the best drawing, but it was really cute. But it's just, I tell him now, he's 12 years old now and he doesn't believe it. He's no way. And I was like, yeah, you did that. <laughs> that is great. I mean, Isn't that, that is a great I mean, story. It, again, yeah. it guides you. It keeps you back into mm-hmm. even how heavy they that's the gift of a child. Yeah. That's the gift that a child brings. Yeah. And it's worth preserving yeah. in yourself when, as you grow. Yeah, you, you, know? you have to because society would just it'll, it'll force Bless you to you lose up. it. Yeah, it'll force you to lose that. And you have to hold on to that. You have to hold on to that, that kid that you were because you're going to need that kid to, to help you out and to help you out in, 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 in creating and and because that's how it is. I mean, even when people are creating, even when they're doing little models, they're like they're like little kids again. These grown people, little mm-hmm. kids, just doing these things, and 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 they're like in another world, and they feel they feel safe there. They they they're just enjoying it, and 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 everyone should should do that. Everyone should 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 not be afraid of allowing that child to to. Let 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 the kid out. Just let the kid out. That's all. And you're gonna be let fine. Yeah, let the kid out. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> Go play, let the kid out. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Beautiful conversation. <laughs> I wanna close this. I mean, I don't want to close the conversation, but I know we're running out of time or we are over time. But I wanna close this conversation with the brindis. I got my jazz drink, which if you don't know is a cocktail-free drink that I just received from yeah a woman that I met at an event and she does these like alcohol-free cocktails 
for those who choose to be alcohol free. So mm-hmm. shout out to Jazz. And it's so yummy. It's a paloma, but like mm-hmm. without alcohol, but it tastes just like a paloma. But I want to do a cheers, a brindis with both of you. And I want to give you both the space. What do you want to cheers to? And what do you want to manifest for nuestra comunidad latina? Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Let's all work together. It doesn't matter what, what, where you come from, from Latin America or wherever. Let's, let's just work together as, as, as one community, help each other out, lend a hand, and live in peace. That's all. Just let's live in peace already. We need this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's- Amen. Amen. Rosemary, do you have one? I do. I think that I want us... I guess my I I will take his wish and his and I will add the intention that it's my dream to see us shatter the monolith and to celebrate each and every voice with equal respect, equal sense of appreciation and equal sense of fun because in all the sampling i mean if it was an ice cream shop would you all want just one flavor no that's the fun part i want to see all the flavors i want to taste them (laughs) and that's what we all have to offer regardless but for our people we have a lot to share and a lot to celebrate let it ring out loud amen times two salute times two Thank you so much, both of you, for being part of the podcast and for sharing your story, your wins, the the childlike spirit. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. It's been such a fun evening with you. Thank you, Odalis. I am a fan and I am digging so many of the wonderful voices that you interview. They are just inspirational. They really are. Y'all, please head to the show notes right now and connect with Rosemary and Mario. Click on those links for Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, their website, etc. And I'll see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme. For all Hella Latino updates, follow Hella Latino Podcast on Instagram. You can also find me on LinkedIn and check out my website, odalisjasmine.com for much more information. Con muchísimo amor, tu amiga Andureña. Abrazos.